Would you pray with me, church? Father in heaven, God, I, when I think about my life, I, I realize that probably more often than not, I, I let you down. When I sing that song, Father, I realize that in so many ways, I, I'm not anything like you. And yet, Father, even though I'm broken, even though I, I struggle to do the things that I know I should do, and, and God, I struggle to not do the things I know I shouldn't, I, I know, Father, that there's just a whole lot out there that I don't even notice. I'm so busy and distracted with life and with my own opinion and my own plans and my own family that I, that I just don't notice that you put opportunities right in front of me that I walk right past. Father, I forget that you've blessed us all with so much in this world, everything that we need to live the kind of life that you've called us to live, and yet I, I seem to always want more and something different. And yet, Father, we just thank you today that you never let us down. And that at the core of your being, you are just, you're good. You're everything that's perfect and right and holy and set apart. And even though, Father, we're often so different, you, you love us anyway. And you've made a place for us in your family. We have a seat at your table. We belong in your home. And someday, Father, if we live our life as your children ought, you're going to call us home to spend all of eternity with you and whatever that entails. And God, we look forward to that day. I just pray that as we open your word today, that you would just open our hearts to see what it is that you have to say to us. Help us to be better people. Help us to understand the mind and heart of Christ even more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last few weeks, guys, we've been talking about what it means to be anchored. And, and you, you know, it, it's, for me at least, that's something that's kind of important <laughs> because uh, we live in a world today that, that there's just not a lot of certainties, are there? There's a lot of things that are just kind of crazy. Uh, we look around and we can just see that, that there's a lot of uncertain waters and uncertain passages. And, and, and I think it's important that we, we look and say, am, am I really grounded? Am I, am I hooked on something that's going to carry me through the rest of my life? I, I, love, I love looking around the room this morning because there's literally people from every stage of life that are here today. There's there's, there's kids, they just snuck out and are over next door with Brad learning about kings today. Um, but there, there's young kids, there's, there's uh, high, junior high and high schoolers, there's college-age kids, there's young adults, there's, there's middle-aged adults. I guess I'm in that category now as much as it pains me to say this. Um, then there's folks that are, that are through that stage that are grandparents and, and uh, great-grandparents. And, 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 you know, the thing is, is that the truths of Scripture just keep us in that place where we can continue to move in the direction of God throughout our life. I'm so thankful that God provides us with those opportunities. We're going to start a, a little bit different path this morning um, as, as, as we kind of, in a way, prepare ourselves, as we always do, for, for remembering the, the, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, ultimately. We're going to take a look at a, at a bit of text of Scripture that comes from really in the middle of Mark, or of Luke, rather, around Luke, the ninth chapter, and Luke 10. There's this watershed moment in the book of Luke that really changes the, the whole tenor uh, of how Luke is writing. And, and just, just for kind of reminders today, you guys remember that Luke is that 
New Testament writer that's very historical. He's very linear. He's an historian. So he kind of lays this out. This is what happens. In fact, he, he says, I'm trying to give you an orderly account. Um, I think he's pointing at John and thinking, John is never going to have an, ordin- an, an orderly account. It's all going to be random and full of feelings. And Matthew is, is he's concerned about, about what the Jewish people are dealing with. And Mark is trying to just kind of condense the big themes of Scripture. Luke's like, my niche right here is going to be, I'm going to tell you how it happened. And there's this moment right in the middle of the book of Luke, in Luke the ninth chapter and verse 51, where there's this almost fleeting passage of scripture. But when we look at Luke as a whole, we realize it's not fleeting. Luke is actually kind of giving us a clue that this is where the ministry of Jesus really began to change. And he's just been kind of rejected in the Samaritan villages, just so you kind of have some background on that. And uh, And so here it is, Luke 9, verse 51. It says, as a time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, some of your versions might say Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem. And if you, if you kind of know a little bit about, about geography and where people are right now, you can kind of pinpoint where Jesus is on the map. You can pinpoint where Jerusalem is. You, at, at, even if you were walking pretty slow, this journey would take you maybe three to five days at the maximum, right? We're not talking a considerable walking distance right here. Pretty short distance. Jesus is going to make this, this five-day journey last well over six months, all right? Jesus is going to take his time. So John's not, or I mean, pardon me, Luke isn't saying that Jesus is about to head to Jerusalem. Jesus, all of a sudden, his focus in life has switched, up until this point, Jesus has been kind of accumulating a following. He's been working with disciples. He's been announcing his coming into the world. But at this point, Jesus realizes my, my lifetime here is nearing its end, and I'm about to hand this off to these guys, right? And, and these guys are the disciples and the apostles. And you look around that group, and you'd be like, oh, my goodness, Jesus. You know, if they're not having an argument about who's the greatest, they're trying to, to, to strut their stuff about how much they know, or in some cases, they're pilfering money. I mean, this is a, this is a group of very human people. Jesus is about to hand over to this really ordinary group of guys the most extraordinary thing that ever happened in this world. A plan that God had been working on from the very creation of the world and now had come to its moment of fruition. Jesus, his son, came into the world, would live as we lived, would live a sinless life, would die on the cross, resurrect from the dead, and then ascend to the Father, and the Holy Spirit would come, and the church would be born into the world. And these guys... His, his disciples, his apostles would be the carriers of that message. Jesus is resolutely setting his face towards Jerusalem. In the next six weeks, guys, we're going to kind of look at, at the stories that fill this gap, this six-month or so gap in Jesus' life. And that, what did Jesus do knowing that, that he was about to wrap things up here? How did he, how did he live because we know this about Jesus. Jesus was super intentional, right? Jesus didn't get up in the morning and be like, well, let's see what happens today. He, he already knew. <laughs> he had intentional on a whole nother level. He had known before he was born exactly how he would die. <laughs> and so Jesus has a purpose in everything that he's doing. And I think it does us a lot of good to kind of pull some of that apart and say, why and, and how come? And I think we can learn a lot from that. We're going to start here really this morning with what immediately follows this. Because as Jesus has this kind of moment of change, Jesus stiffens the message of the gospel quite considerably. In the verses that follow this, Jesus begins to talk about the cost of being a disciple. 
How much does it cost uh, to be a disciple? And, and the truth is, guys, we all know that it should cost because anything that's worth something costs something, doesn't it? All right? Uh, a lot of you guys are, are parents in the room today. All of us have parents anyway. But a lot of you guys are parents or you've been around kids. Maybe some of you guys, if you're not a parent, you've had a pet, all right? And you know, when, when, you, when you get a kid <laughs> and uh, you know, that baby's born into your home and you, you bring it home and, oh, it's wonderful, right? But immediately that child begins to start costing you something. You're, you're having to buy diapers. You have to buy clothing. You have to provide for its nutritional needs. Little babies, they just grow, 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 you know? So you've, you've got to make sure that they, that they have the things that they need. There's probably medical bills that you're going to incur and for, for vaccinations and shots and different kinds of things. And as they grow older, they also require considerable more amounts of your time, don't they? How many of you as parents were a little shocked at how much time kids took when you had your first baby? No, but no, yeah, okay, good, because I was thinking I was shocked. I thought maybe I was the only one. My goodness, like free time, the word free time just doesn't exist in your vocabulary anymore when that first child comes in, you know? And then you have two and three, and you forgot what free time even looked like because there's constantly demands for us, but it means something to have a child, doesn't it? And everything in life that means something costs us something. A lot of you have a degree hanging on the wall of your, of your closet or something there, or a high school diploma, right? And, and to get those degrees and those high school diplomas, you invested a lot of your life, a lot of time in order to receive that thing. It's just natural that things that are worth something cost us something. And Jesus wanted those people that were with him, as he, as he turns towards Jerusalem and he recognizes, I'm in the home stretch of my ministry, it's almost like he turns around to the guys and said, hey, Pay attention to this. This is what he says. I'm just going to read it to you guys because it just sets itself up better than I can tell it. As they were walking along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So they're having a little entourage and this guy comes, hey, I want to be a part of Team Jesus. And you might say, well, Jesus would get real excited, like, woohoo, join in, buddy, right? But this is how Jesus responds back. Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He just went to that person and said, look, I'm just letting you know, I don't have a house. I don't have a tent. I don't have a Winnebago. <laughs> I don't have, uh, I don't have a, a home somewhere that I'm holding out on. I don't have a place to sleep tonight. Are you, are you ready for that kind of lifestyle? And I don't know what that person did. I'd love to think that they followed Jesus, but it may be that Jesus knew they weren't ready to deal with that. They weren't ready to spend that much. And then Luke records another. He's, he says, uh, but, but, but another said, or to another, Jesus said, follow me. Now, who else did Jesus say follow me to? To the apostles, right? All right, you guys aren't wanting to talk to me. Like, Jason, this is a sermon. We don't talk in sermons. That's right. All right. Um, but uh, yeah, to the apostles, right? And so, and so Jesus would come up to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, whoever, and he would, he would say, Matthew, follow me. Matthew gets up, leaves his tax collecting booth. They leave their nets. They follow Jesus. Jesus says this to somebody, but rather than just doing it, notice this person, well, he qualifies it. He said, follow me. But this person said, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Now, I just want to point this out real quick, guys. I don't think his dad was dead yet, all right? It's not like his dad had just died, and he's like, look, Jesus, I need to go bury my dad. I think what he was saying is, when my dad's gone, when, 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 when that important person in my life is no longer in my life, then I'm willing 
to follow you. And Jesus responds back and he said, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Notice what I mean when I say that Jesus is kind of stiffening the message of the gospel right here. He's not playing anymore. <laughs> He's telling these guys, look, this is serious. This is a priority. Uh, but there, there's another person, another said, I, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say farewell to those back at my home. And then Jesus says this, no one who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. We could talk about that passage a lot, but you can't plow in one direction if you're looking backwards. And, and Jesus said, look, guys, we need you to have a focus right here. What Jesus is about to do in Luke, the 10th chapter, is really kind of explain to us what it means to live a focused life for Christ. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning because I, I think it's really something that we that we don't normally consider maybe. How much am I really focusing on what God would have me focus on? There's a story told about a guy named Hudson Taylor who was a fairly famous missionary. He worked with a lot of communities of people in Asia. And he was riding from Shanghai in China to another Chinese city. Um, and uh, and uh, as he was making that trip, he was making it by sea and what a sailboat, a Chinese sailboat, it's called a junk. It's got kind of a weird sail. And uh, so he's on this, and he's talking to a guy named Peter. Peter's uh, on this boat, working on this boat, but uh, Peter really, he's sympathetic to the gospel, but he's still kind of pushing back. And Hudson Taylor is an evangelist, you know, like every moment he's having a conversation with somebody, he's like, where are you with God right here? And this Peter guy is kind of keeping him back and almost arguing with him, but Hudson knows deep down inside that the Lord's working on him. And then one day in the course of, of, their daily, of their daily business, Peter trips and falls overboard and lands in the water. Now, a lot of you guys are like, well, that's no big deal. He can just swim, right? Except that a lot of people in those days didn't swim. A lot of sailors didn't swim. And it was cultural in Asia that if you fell overboard, you just weren't cut out to be a sailor, and they just kept on sailing, right? So nobody on the boat did anything. We just keep on going. <laughs> if Peter falls over, there's another Peter at the next port. They'll pick him up and bring him on board. They're not worried about that. Hudson Taylor runs across the deck of the boat, goes to the mast, grabs a hold of the, of the, uh, of the halyards, drops the mast to the deck or the mainsail to the deck, then jumps over the side of the boat and he begins swimming, searching for this man. Well, it just so happened that as the man fell over, they were crossing a group of men fishing with nets. And so Hudson Taylor's swimming about, trying to find this guy who's sunk below the waves at this point, hollering to the guys in the fishing boat, take your nets and throw them in the water. We can net the guy and bring him up. It's a great idea, right? Except the guys in the boat are like, we're not turning loose of our catch of fish unless you pay us. So just imagine this. You've got a guy that just fell over the side of the boat. The guys who are running the boat don't even care enough to drop the mainsail. One guy on the boat drops the mainsail, jumps into the water. He's swimming around while now bartering with a group of fishermen on how much he'll pay them to take their nets from one side of the boat to the other to save a man's life. Finally, they come up with, well, they pretty much talk Hudson Taylor off every penny he had in his pocket. They take the ropes. They throw them on the other side of the boat. They pull them in. Sure enough, there's Peter. He's dead. You know, we look at that story, and Hudson Taylor looked at that story, and he told that a lot. And we, we, it's really easy for us to get mad, you know, and, and for right reasons, right? We get mad at, at, at the guy who was the captain of the little Chinese junk that was sailing, like, like why don't you drop the sails and, and, and send men who can swim into the water? Why, why did it have to be another paying passenger do that? And, and, and we get mad at the guys that are in the fishing boat. We're like, really, guys? I mean, it's not like there's, there's not enough fish in the sea. You can't just drop your nets, go catch them again later, and scoop a life, a human life, out of the water before it's too late. But 
maybe guys, maybe we're a little bit like that sea captain and that fishing crew. Maybe we're, we're so focused on where we're headed and where we've got to go and the schedule we've got to keep. Or maybe we're like the fishing guys and we're, we're so obsessed with, with what we're accumulating right here in our nets in this life that, that we can't imagine stopping that forward progress or dropping that, that net full of accumulations in order, to, in order to reach somebody who's in desperate need. We're so caught up in, in where our future's going or where we're going to go to college or or our sports and activities at school, or we're so worried about our promotion at work, or our family's concerns, or accumulating enough of the things of this world that we might retire in, 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 in luxury and, and in comfort, that we don't stop to realize that all the while we're sailing through life, we're surrounded by people who are drowning. I, I, you're probably like me, and we, we don't notice it. We don't notice it, but they're there. And maybe the biggest difference between Jesus and Jason is that Jesus saw it and it bothered him. Jesus said, I'm going to do something about this. In Luke, the 10th chapter, Jesus sends out, uh, collects and get, sends out 70 or 72 people. If you're worried about the difference in that number, you can talk to me later. We'll have a long discussion about whether or not it's 70 or 72. I'm not worried. You guys probably aren't either. He collected seven, we're going to say 72 people. I think that's the right answer. Um, he, he collected 72 people and he gave them this mission. He said, I'm going to send you guys out and I want you to do, I want you kind of to set the stage for me as I make this meandering trip over the next seven months or six months to Jerusalem. That's going to be your, your mission, your purpose. And he sends them out with warnings and instructions that I think are really good for us to get even today. What would Jesus tell a group of people like us if he were to send us out to be his, well, evangelists? Because in a way, he's done that, right? So here's some personal instruction. Now, I just want to tell you guys up front that there is instruction that pertains particularly to these people, and I'll, we'll talk about that. But there's some overarching principles that I think are good for all of us, no matter where we might find ourselves. So let's jump into this. The first one, well, there's really four things we're going to look at. If you want to tick these off of your paper, you can. The first one is prayer. The second one is a mission that they went with. The third is the message that they carried. And then lastly, the attitude in which they carried it, the urgency with which that they carried that message. So let's talk about the first one really quick this morning. The part that prayer plays in this whole scheme. You would expect, and you would be right, that Jesus, if he was sending anybody out, would, would do so with a considerable amount of prayer. And it would seem like that while these guys were gone, that Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer, no doubt covering their ministry and their mission in prayer. But Jesus also challenges them to pray. And I, I want you to read with me in Luke, the 10th chapter, verse 1. You can look it up on your phone or your, your Bible or whatever you have. It says, After this, Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Jesus kind of knew what he was about to do. And he said, I want you two to go this place, you two to go this place. Kind of sent people out. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Remember I said that Jesus, Jesus probably saw the drowning people when he was sailing through life. Jesus looked around and he's like, guys, you would not believe the abundance of the harvest that's available. But there's not very many people to go gather it. There's not very many laborers. There's not very many reapers, we would use that word. And, and maybe, maybe partly why this is hard for us to understand is that when we think about 
agriculture, we, we think about mechanized agriculture, right? We think, about, we think about fields that are planted with great big tractors and planters. We, we think about uh, harvest time where farmers get out huge combines that cut like 30-foot swaths through a field, and they just pick up massive amounts all at once. But the kind of harvesting that Jesus was talking about is very different. The kind of harvesting that Jesus is talking about is, 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 is it's back-breaking work, guys. So, so wheat grows, you know, about this tall. We think that wheat was relatively the same height from this time that, to uh, then. Um, we kind of changed things up a lot in the last hundred years or so in agriculture, but before that, things stayed the same. And what, what the people would do is they would have, to, they would have a thing called a sigh, which is, which is like a, a curved knife blade with a handle. And, and the reaper would get down bend over and he would grab a bunch of that with one arm and then he would take the sigh and he would cut it loose and then he would grab more and sigh it, cut it loose, grab more, cut it loose. Think about this for just a second. I, I, I'm not going to make you guys all get up today, but this is not fun work right here. Some of you guys that are old like me, right? You already know your back and knees are starting to hurt, right? You're bent over and you're cutting this acre after acre. You're grabbing this, this crop. It's in your hair. The the seeds are falling down your shirt. It's tickling your ears. The dirt is on your face. It's hot. It's sweaty. It's literally back-breaking work. It's no wonder no one wants to be a laborer, right? No one wants to get out and bend over all day and, and get down and dirty in the harvest. And yet Jesus said that's exactly what we need. We need people to get down and dirty and, and, and stoop from their elevated level to the level of the harvest and cut it loose and to bring it home. That's what we need. But there's not very many people that would do that. Now, you might say, well, how does Jesus fix that kind of a problem? I love this passage for a couple reasons. One of which is that Jesus doesn't suggest to us that we berate people or force people or pay people off to do that. Notice what Jesus says. Just, just read this. He said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, or because of this, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So here's what God says. God says, here's what I want you to do. Jesus said, this is what I want you to do. You look around, guys. There's harvest everywhere, but there's no one to collect it. So are we going to freak out? Are we going to fuss people? No, Jesus said, we're not going to do that. We're going to pray that God provides laborers. Now, there's a couple things that this is just awesome. This solution is the best. Obviously, it is because Jesus said it, right? But there's a couple just obvious logical reasons we can look at and understand this is great. Number one, it, it, it puts, it puts the, the challenge where it firmly belongs, right? God is all-powerful. If you and I look around and we start to open our eyes, guys, we can become overwhelmed very quickly because there's just needs everywhere in this world. And you might be, would you, how can I meet even 1% of the needs in my immediate circle? If you begin to open your eyes up, guys, and you begin to not be self-focused and just look at the people that you're living life with, there's a lot of people that are drowning. There's a lot of people that are not thriving. There's a lot of people that are thrashing around in life and they're really hoping for something better but you only have 24 hours in your day. And you only have so much physical strength and so much mental energy. We're just one, and there's a great big harvest. Jesus said, when we're overwhelmed, we're not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by 
prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. Jesus said when you feel like you're overwhelmed, the perfect thing to do is to go to God and say, God, help us out here. That's how we should be living our life. So he says, pray about it, but it puts it right in a place where it needs to be. But here's the second thing about it, guys. Everyone can do this. Every single one of us in this room this morning can do what Jesus asks us to do. Some of you might say, well, Jason, I have a lot of social anxiety. I just don't do well talking to, you know, talking to people. You can still pray. Some of you might be, well, Jason, you don't know, I'm old. I'm 89 years old. I I, I just can't get around like I used to. And I I just don't, you know, my health doesn't let me intermingle with people, especially right now, maybe as much. But you can still pray. No matter who you are, no matter what's going on in the world, we we can still go to God and say, God, I want to see people go out and, and make a difference in this world. I want people to harvest. I want people to rescue a lot of these people who are drowning. All of us can do this. So let's be honest. <laughs> I don't like to be honest with myself sometimes, but it's important for me and it's important for all of us. You know, it's true that we pray about the things that we care about, don't we? I, I pray a lot about my, my wife um, because she's very important to me, right? Love her to death, and if I didn't have Michelle around, I'd be a mess. Um, some of you guys have witnessed that when Michelle leaves and goes up and up north for a week, and uh, you're a little worried if I'm not going to survive, and that's that's well placed worry, right? Um, yeah, because she's a big part of, part of my life. I've I can't really imagine life without her at this point. I, I pray a lot for my kids because I love them to death too. They're very very important to me. I want to see them. I want to see them love the Lord their entire life. I want to spend eternity with them in heaven. And I know there's a million billion things that can snare up all of us in this world. And I just pray. I pray that God, that God keeps them from that and holds them close. I pray about my friends and their problems in life. They'll call me up, Jason, I got this going on. My job's not good. Or, hey, I got this ministry opportunity or whatever the case might be. God, you know, just pray that God will help me know what to do. And I do that because I, I care for my friends. I love them. I can see their face. I know the pain they're going through or the struggle they're going through. And I go to God and say, God, help them out. I pray about that because I, I care about my friends. I, I pray about my health when I'm sick, all right? How many of you are babies, incidentally? Just checking here. How many of you are kind of babies when you get sick? All right, this is a much more honest group than the first group right here. The first group, only one person raised their hand. I don't believe it because I've seen some of those people when they were sick. They're babies, all right? Um, we all get it like that a little bit, right? We, we know our health is so important. If you don't have your health, you really don't have anything. And, and we, we were sick or we have some undetermined illness, and we, we can really get serious in prayer to God because that's important to us. The question is for us this morning, does... The Lord's harvest matter enough for us to pray about it. In this last week, in this last month, do you remember the last time you went to God and you said, God, send workers out into the harvest field? Father, there's a lot of lost people in this world, and I, I, I don't know if I'm the person to win them. I'll do my best, but God, we need a lot more help out here. When was the last time we went to the boss to the Lord of the harvest and said, Father, we need help. Here's one thing I know about God, and I know that God loves to hear his children ask him for what they need, and especially when what they need is building his kingdom. He wants for us to come to him and say, God, we need help down here, because when we recognize we need help, that means that we've seen the need. Jesus said, hey, There's a big harvest. 
ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field. But Jesus didn't send these guys out just, you know, willy-nilly, like, hey, let's just go, go out and uh, have a good time, guys. Jesus sends these guys out on a mission, and it's some kind of a serious mission. Read with me in verse number three. As we continue on, he said, go on your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So we're not maybe real familiar with sheep or wolves, but you guys get the picture. Jesus is like, hey, guys, uh, thanks for showing up at this, at this motivational meeting. Um, today I'm sending you out like innocent, innocent and wimpy animals with zero defenses amongst carnivorous, uh, conniving, conniving wolves right here. You just go out into the world. They're going to tear you up. It's going to be okay. That's kind of what Jesus is, simple, is saying to these people. I, I, I love Jesus' pep talks. They're very different than our pep talks. In our pep talks, we, we try to get people to ignore reality and just focus on all the good, right? Jesus loved for people to see the reality and focus on the goodness of God behind it all. So Jesus is like, hey, you guys on your own, you're like sheep with that, with, in, in a pack of wolves right here. And then he goes on. He says, carry with you no money bag, no knapsack. For some of us, that would be tough, right? No sandals, and greet no one on the road. So he says, first of all, I'm going to send you out in a very dangerous situation, and I don't want you to bring any money. I don't want you to bring any extra clothes. I don't even want to bring you any extra shoes. I just want you to go all by yourself. I don't want you to be distracted in any way. In fact, he, he goes on to say that. Don't even talk or greet people on the road. I, I want you to be completely focused on the mission. Whenever you enter a house, first say, peace be to this house, and if the son of the peace isn't there... Your peace will rest upon him, and if not, it will return to you. Jesus said, hey, and he gives them a lot of instructions on how to, how, to, how to interact with people when they go into these towns because they're not going with any money. They're not going with any possessions. They're going to be completely dependent on God providing for their every need. And, and I, I'm what, I told you guys I would tell you when there were specific instructions. This was specific instructions for this group of 72 people. God has not sent us out like this, all of us, every day. But the reasons behind this are really obvious for us to see. Jesus wanted them to recognize that this mission that they were given was the most important thing that they ever could receive. He didn't want anything to distract them from it. And they went out with a sense of mission. Hey, can you imagine if we recruited volunteers for church today like this? Like, you know, we, we, need, uh, we need volunteers to teach junior high school. Um, and so uh, here's the thing. Uh, oh, you, you would like to teach? Great. Let me tell you what. We have a great junior high school program here. These kids tore the last teacher apart in two weeks. And, uh, oh, by the way, we're not giving you any, uh, any curriculum. You just come up with your own. Um, no, there'll be no games or snacks or activities. Uh, it'll be an hour and a half class. Good luck. How long do you think? I mean, this is the kind of thing Jesus is doing right here, right? I'm sending you out among wolves, and I'm not giving you any tools to work with. I just want you to trust God. Now, later on, Jesus is going to reference back, and he's going he's to talk about that. And he's, he's going he's gonna, to, well, let me, just, let me just jump to that. In Luke 22 and verse 35, Jesus is talking to the same group of people, presumably, and he says this. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? You guys remember back a few months ago when I start, we started this whole thing out and I booted you guys out and said, hey, just go out and tell everybody that I'm about to be there, but don't bring any stuff with you. Did you guys, anyone get in a bind? And uh, they answered back. They said, well, no, nothing. <laughs> it's amazing, right? This is a faith-building moment. Listen, guys, sometimes God puts us in these. 
and we don't like them. You can just sympathize with those 72 people, right? If they showed up and Jesus said, look, you guys are going into a very dangerous situation and I'm sending you with absolutely nothing. Some of us know exactly what this feels like in life because we found ourselves there. We turn around and we look and we realize that the stakes are really high, but we really don't have anything and we have to completely depend on God. Sometimes when we get in those places, we're, we're tempted to feel like God has abandoned us. But as we look back at that, with the, with the advantage of hindsight, we see that no, God was just showing us how much he can provide. Because we look back at that scene and that time in our life and we see, we see that God was there every step of the way. Little things that just worked out, but we, don't, we know things don't just work out in life. God provides them, especially when they lay out like that. That's what Jesus wanted the disciples to see. But then he changes it up in verse 36 and he says to them, but now the one who has a money bag, you need to take it. This is much later in Jesus' ministry. This is right nearing the end. And likewise, if you have a knapsack, bring it. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Jesus was saying there, there's a time in life just to go and wing it on faith. But this is not the time. If you have money, you need to bring it. If you have extra provisions, you need to pack them. If you don't have a way to defend yourself, you better get one because things are about to get real. So, so understand here that, that the rules kind of changed. It, the instructions were specific to those 72 people. But the lessons, they apply to all of us, don't they? Jesus wanted them to be focused and real. There's an old preacher story told about a, a guy that was out fishing in a lake. And uh, man, he had everything figured up. He had a newest bass boat, a big 125 horsepower motor. He had like 10 rods and reels that cost more than my truck, right? I mean, he had all the fancy lures and the baits and the organizers. He had on the fancy fishing shorts and that little jersey thing that they wear that looks so cool. He, he had all that. And he's out on this lake and he is fishing like a fiend. And he's catching nothing. I mean, he's got these casts going. He's, he's changing lures and switching up rods and reels and, and approaches and he looks over, and here's a, a lady pulls up at some point in that morning of fishing. And he watches out the corner of her eye, and she catches a fish. And she catches another fish. And she catches another fish. And boy, his pride's getting hurt right here because he's got all the rig up, right? And, and so eventually he, he kind of uh, humbles himself, and he hollers over across the water. He says, hey, uh, um, uh, what am I doing wrong? You're catching a ton of fish. I, I'm not catching anything. What, what am I doing wrong? And she shouts back, why are you fishing? He said, I, I fish for sport. She said, that's the difference. I fish for dinner. The thing is, guys, that he was just out there to have a good time. He was out there to look like a fisherman. He was out there with equipment that made it seem like he knew what he was doing. It was flashy. It was bright. She was out there in an old beat-up boat, but she was fishing with a purpose. She was fishing because it mattered. She was fishing because her kids were depending on it. And, and their approaches to fishing were completely different. He was trying all kinds of things that looked good. She was trying things that she knew would work. He was worried about what other people were thinking. She was worried about filling someone's belly, really accomplishing something. And guys, Jesus wanted his apostles to see that. Guys, we're on a mission, and this mission is critical. Not only that, but Jesus sent them out with a message. His message was simple and yet very profound. In verse number nine, he says, heal the sick, and he gave them a lot of special gifts to really kind of solidify the fact that 
he was, they were from God, which is understandable. He said, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And everybody that heard those words knew what these 72 people that were going out in these towns were talking about. They, they, they knew that, that they had been looking forward to the Messiah coming and the kingdom of heaven being established. They, they didn't understand all what it was about, but, but they knew enough about it to know that this was a real deal. And it was, it was accompanied by signs. But whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you in the streets, Jesus goes on to say, even the dust in your town that clings to your feet, wipe it off. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. The opportunity has been given. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Jesus, Jesus said, guys, our message here is about the gospel. Our message is the good news that Jesus is here. Now, our story is different than theirs because they were just saying Jesus is on earth. The Messiah is here. Our story is far more complete than theirs. We can say that Jesus has come. Not only has he come, but he has died for our sins. He has been buried. He has resurrected again. He has gone into heaven, and he's given us an opportunity to be born into his family, to inherit the, the holiness that he provides for us, to be clothed with Christ. We know way more about the goodness of this story than they did, but, but the point is, is very, very much similar. Are we ready and willing to share that kind of message with people? Because what Jesus warned them of is what we know too. The message of Jesus always has been controversial. Some people are going are gonna to receive it and be like, wow, that's awesome. That's what I've been looking for my whole life. And other people, when we step out on that, that, that ledge and we, we tell them about Jesus, they're going to push back on that. They're going to say, I don't want to hear that. I'm not interested in that. I don't want that Jesus stuff as a part of my life. How Jesus ends that is always kind of, well, it's kind of sobering to me. Jesus said, you know what, it'd be better for a town of, the town of Sodom. If you know a little bit about that in the Old Testament, it was a very, very wicked city full of people who didn't really know about God as far as we know. And, and they had allowed the wickedness to get so far off the rails that God actually destroyed these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, fire rained down from heaven. And yet Jesus said it would be better for, for those cities, those ancient wicked cities, than for a city who appeared to be religious, appeared to be good, and yet rejected Jesus. Every single one of these towns that Jesus sends people into, they're all Jewish towns. They're full of good Jewish people, religious people, people that know God. They're not doing the kind of sinful, outlandish, awful things that we read about in Sodom and Gomorrah, except that they are going to reject Jesus, some of them. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Later on in the text, and we're not going to look at it today, Jesus talks specifically about Capernaum. And he says, Capernaum, you guys, you think that you're, you're something high and exalted. You think that you're, that you're important. He said, you're going to be brought low. Today, if you go to Israel, Capernaum is and has been and probably always will be just a pile of ruins it's a forgotten place. They thought they were something important. They thought they were impressive. The whole world looked to Capernaum as a place that they wanted to live. Jesus said, not long, because you neglected to do the most important thing. You neglected the message of Jesus Christ coming here. As we close this morning, I just want us to look at the last. We've taken a look at the prayer. Jesus said, guys, there's a lot of labor or a lot of harvest, not very many labors. We need to pray about it. 
We looked at, the, at the, the mission that he sent him out on. He said, look, there's a purpose for us to live. That same for us today. We're not just here for random reasons. We're here because we carry the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. We've been commissioned to spread that to the world. He reminds us that the message is that Jesus is the way, that the kingdom of heaven is on this world, on this earth, just like it was in those times. And the last thing is just the attitude in which they carried it with. There was a certain urgency in what Jesus is saying. Guys, as a church, we're not here just to try to tell people, now try Jesus and you'll feel better. It's never the message of the gospel. We're, we're, we're sensitive and we understand that people are in different places in life and we're not here to try to shove something on, something, on someone that someone doesn't want to believe. But, but life is short. And guys, maybe some of us have conversations or need to have conversations with people in our lives. We know we just need to talk with them about the message of the gospel and we just put it off. We think, well, there'll be another day or there'll be a better opportunity. There'll be a, an easier time. There was a golf tournament in 1981 outside of Dallas. It was the Nelson, uh, Brian Nelson Invitational Golf Tournament. And uh, it was a golf tournament like any others. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a golf tournament, but uh, I know some avid golfers. People love golf, and they never go to a golf tournament because, for one thing, most of the time you're standing, right? You follow the galley, they call it. You follow the golfers around. You've got to be very quiet because it's a very high-concentration sport, so you have to whisper. And uh, you're, you're standing there on the side of the greens and watching these guys. But, you know, one of the spectators was doing that, and he sought some shelter out of the squelching hot Dallas sun underneath a tree, and as will happen on a random occasion, a giant branch decided that that was its moment that it could hold on no longer. And this giant branch fell out of the tree, landed directly on top of the spectator, and killed him on the spot. This happened all the while a golfer by the name of... Um, Oh my goodness. Charles Cooley was out on the course. He was actually on the green and he, he, he left his golf club and he rushed over to check on the spectator. The spectator was dead. Eventually, the, 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 the person was taken away to the hospital or wherever and, and the golf tournament resumed, if you can imagine. And he was asked later, he said, did you finish the, did you finish the golf match? He said, I did. He said, I, I really had no desire to play golf after that though. He said, you know, those three-foot putts just didn't seem to matter all that much anymore. <laughs> Guys, there's a lot of stuff in life that we are really worried about right now. We're distracted by, we might say. We're a little bit like that captain of that boat that said, I've got to make it to this next port on schedule. I don't have time to, to drop my sails and lose momentum to pick up a clumsy deckhand. We're a little bit like those fishermen that, that are so absorbed in collecting fish on one side of the boat that they have to be bribed with tons of money just to drop that net and bring it over to fish out then by the time they got it, lifeless body of, of a young man. God wants us to be a whole lot more like that missionary who runs to the mask, who grabs a hold of the halyard and drops the sail, who jumps into the water and who's shouting to people around, hey guys, we have someone drowning here. Let's do something about that. The harvest, Jesus said, it's plentiful. But laborers, they're hard to find. This really just sets up where Jesus is about to go. In the next six weeks, Jesus is, or next six months, we're going to follow as Jesus meanders the next six weeks on his way to Jerusalem and shows us, well, he shows us how to be that laborer and how to save the lost.